I were the devil, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd tell you hell's not real, and watch what you would do. Welcome to Apostolic Voice, I'm your host, Ryan French, and today's topic is somber. We're going to examine what the Bible teaches about hell. My father once told me that preaching about hell is the most difficult thing he's ever done as a minister of the gospel. He also said that if you don't have tears in your eyes when preaching about hell, something is wrong with your spirit, and I I think that's true. When I decided to write the original article for Ryan A. French called, What About Hell? Everything You Need to Know, I was overwhelmed with sadness and a sense of urgency. I poured hundreds of hours of study, prayer, and thought into this topic because of its weight and importance. Everything we believe has consequences, good and bad, that flow from the belief itself. And I wanted to be sure that I knew what the Bible teaches without the abstraction of my preconceived ideas. And that's important because I grew up without realizing hell was a debated biblical topic. I'm old enough to remember when preaching on hell was commonplace. It wasn't unusual to go to a youth service and hear a terrifying sermon about hell. It's probably the reason I'm saved today. I remember being stunned when I realized some people had really strange doctrines about the afterlife and hell. For me, it was always a settled question, but I wanted to make sure that my theology matched the Bible. Because what you believe to be true about hell matters in more ways than you can imagine. So, as we walk our way through this topic, common questions are going to be answered like, is hell a real place? Is purgatory real? Is hell eternal? How could a good God send anyone to hell? Are there levels of punishment in hell? And much more. When we get done, you'll know everything you need to know about hell. Oh, oh, and at the very end of this episode, I've edited a portion of the infamous sermon by T.G. McNeely called Trophies on the Walls of Hell. It's well worth ignoring the poor audio quality. 80s audio doesn't hold up well. But it's well worth enduring that to hear that powerful sermon. So let's get started. If I were Satan and wanted to influence people to be less concerned about their eternal soul, I would stir up lots of confusion about hell. And that's pretty much what he's done. Hell was a relatively non-controversial doctrine for centuries. It's one of just a handful of universally agreed upon doctrines in history. But postmodernism is defined by disagreement and predisposed to disregard truth, so it shouldn't surprise us that hell became a hotly contested, controversial theology. But Satan's misinformation campaign is silently creeping its way into apostolic thinking, like a, like a spider stalking its prey. So this confusion about hell is deeply concerning, and we need to shed some light on Satan's hellish scheme. But first we need to ask ourselves, why are people confused about hell in the first place? Why is there so much confusion? And before we can dive into specific false doctrines, we need to understand why this issue is here in the first place. I think we need to begin by recognizing that somehow preaching about hell became taboo. It went from being commonplace to very irregular and unusual. I believe this happened and is happening for several reasons. Number one, preachers are unprepared to defend the paradox of God's love and God's judgment. Number two, preachers are afraid modern listeners can't handle the truth about hell. Number three, some preachers, and I say some, haven't settled a theology about hell in their hearts. Number four, preachers are afraid of being labeled wild-eyed lunatics. Number five, many ministers don't believe in scaring people into heaven. Number six, they sense that hell is a taboo subject and simply give in to the peer pressure. Seven, some preachers wanted to distance themselves from genuinely distasteful hellfire preachers. Number eight, 
preachers are being influenced by mainstream misinformation about hell that isn't rooted in solid biblical exegesis. When preachers are silent, saints become vulnerable to every wind of false doctrine. Sadly, saints ingest lots of false doctrine via Christian television, radio, social media, and literature. They read, see, and hear misinformation all the time. Christians who aren't comfortable seeking out their own salvation with fear and trembling are highly susceptible to believing misinformation about hell or anything else for that matter. And it's easy to blame preachers, but saints are responsible for growing in God's word themselves without being spoon-fed every vital thing from a minister. Listen to the frustration in the Apostle Paul's writings as he reprimands saints in the following passage for their lack of biblical knowledge and understanding. This is Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 14, and I'm reading from the Amplified Bible. He said this, You have become dull in your spiritual hearing and sluggish, even slothful in achieving spiritual insight. For even though by this time you ought to be teaching others, you actually need someone to teach you over again the very first principles of God's word. You've come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who continues to feed on milk is obviously inexperienced and unskilled in the doctrine of righteousness, of conformity to the divine will in purpose, thought, and action. For he is a mere infant, not able to walk yet, but solid food is for full-grown men, for those whose senses and mental facilities are trained by practice to discriminate and distinguish between what is morally good and noble and what is evil and contrary either to divine or human law. Wow. You see, the devil knows that his time is limited. He knows the rapture's coming soon. He doesn't know the day or the hour, just like we don't know the day or the hour, but he can see the signs just like we see the signs. So he's intensifying and strategically honing his attacks. I realize that Revelation 12.12 is speaking of a future event prophetically, but it does give insight into how the devil operates. Revelation 12.12 says this, Rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. And here's the key because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. When Satan is running out of time, he hits harder. He intensifies his efforts. Time itself is wrapping up. And even if the church isn't fully aware of it, the devil is. So now let's ask another question. Why does it matter what you believe concerning hell? Why does it matter? Technically, it, it might be possible to have an incorrect understanding of hell and be saved, but false doctrine damages other essential areas of our walk with God, regardless of what false doctrine it is. But let me give you an example. If hell isn't a real, painful, never-ending place, why in the world would we feel an urgency to evangelize? Without a correct belief in the horrors of hell, we're unlikely to carry a real burden for the lost or take the Great Commission seriously. After all, what do people need to be saved from in the first place? It is correct that people aren't likely to be terrified into a right relationship with God. I know that, and I know that fear tactics don't work. However, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, and multiple other scriptures tell us this. The word fear is best translated as reverence. We talked about this in the last podcast, which you should go check out. Uh, we were talking about the argument for holiness, and reverence came up several times. And that word reverence means awe mingled with healthy fear. I submit that our culture, religious and non-religious, has lost its sense of reverence for God. Wisdom begins with fear which leads to a proper understanding of God. We can't know God without reverence. An improper view of hell results in a wrong knowledge of God. All false doctrines have ever-expanding unintended consequences. So, while it might be correct that people won't serve God long-term out of fear, because ultimately we've got to fall in love with the Lord, and the beginning of our relationship with God 
must include some healthy fear. If we bypass reverence on the way to love, our walk with God will be off balance. In many ways, it's like a child growing up. I know that in my younger years, I spent a lot of time being afraid that I was going to get a spanking if I did the wrong thing. My parents corrected corrected us, and and they believed in spanking. And so I had I had a, an awe mingled with fear for my parents. I loved them, but I was also a little bit afraid of them. And that was a good thing when I was young. But what happened as I grew, that correction took hold and I began to do right things out of love for my parents and also out of love for the Lord. It's the same with the Lord. We, when we begin our relationship with God, sometimes we're just, <laughs> we're just being obedient out of fear. But as we grow in that relationship with God, we, we love him and we're obedient because we're mature and, and we've developed to the point where we're not having to worry about the big stick. Instead, we're just worried about wanting to please God. So let's look at a, a, biblical, a biblical principle. Really, it's a, a biblical reality, and it's called the terror of the Lord. Consider this passage where Paul speaks briefly of death. Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5.8. He continues by saying that we labor to be present with the Lord in death, 2 Corinthians 5.9. And then Paul says some very politically incorrect words if we view it from our, our modern perspective. This is first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10-11. He said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God. Paul is carefully emphasizing in this passage that we're all going to stand before the Lord in judgment for the things we've done in this life, for the things we've done with these mortal bodies. We're going to have to give account of that. And because we have this holy fear of God, we know we're going to stand before him in judgment. It motivates us to reach people with the gospel so they can stand before the Lord blamelessly. And it also motiv motivates us to continue in righteousness so we can stand before the Lord blamelessly. Genuine Christians are highly determined to reach lost people because they understand the fearsome judgment of God. If God's judgment isn't dreadful, there's little reason to feel an urgency about evangelism. And so it makes sense. It makes sense that Satan would create an aura of confusion around the subjects of God's wrath and hell. We all need a healthy fear of hell. Look at this often overlooked passage where Jesus startles his audience. This is Luke 12, verses 4 through 5. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus said this, Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. So if they kill your body, that's all they can do. But I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you, and then throw your body into hell. I love how Jesus started gently and then wham, he bounced like an old-time preacher. Actually, the old-time preachers were preaching like Jesus, but, but Jesus pounced, telling them to fear God and shun hell. The word throw that Jesus employed there could also be translated hurl, which gives a little more gravitas to the message. Fear God who has the power to kill you and then hurl you into hell. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty terrifying stuff. But Jesus didn't end the sermon with, fear, uh, with fire and brimstone. He gave us a beautiful example to follow in our preaching and teaching. Watch how Jesus brought that gut-wrenching thought back around to the overwhelming love of God. This is Luke 12, 6 through 7. What is the price of five sparrows, two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. This snippet of Jesus' preaching shows us precisely how to strike a balance between fearing and loving God. As we realize just how majestically awesome God is, we grow to love Him more. 
But if we view God as the great big cuddly teddy bear in the sky, we're more likely to disrespect and disobey God. It it can't be helped. It's human nature. We keep circling back around to Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We all need to begin and end with a healthy dose of fear. We just can't be saved if we don't fear God in hell. So, now that we've set the, the foundation a little bit, we can dive into a few common false doctrines about hell. So, let me give you the first common false doctrine. It's typically called the metaphorical view. The metaphorical view of hell is, is growing in popularity despite its lack of biblical support. In the metaphorical doctrine, unsaved people will spend eternity in hell. But the extreme pain and environmental conditions described in the Bible, and we're going to talk about those in a little bit here, all of those environmental conditions aren't interpreted literally. The biblical definitions and descriptions of fire, heat, bondage, darkness, thirst, worms, pain, flogging are all considered symbolic in this theology. And proponents of this doctrine believe separation from God is the ultimate pain of eternity. Indeed, I agree that the separation from the love of God is going to be horrific, but it's not the only biblical view of hell. Really, this doctrine kind of gained some traction and popularity with with Billy Graham. Billy Graham said famously, I've often wondered if hell is a terrible burning within our hearts for God, to fellowship with God a fire that we can never quench. Billy Graham leaned towards the metaphorical view of hell. And I understand why this is attractive to some people. It's attractive to myself. If, if I were just leaning to my own uh, desire or, or just human thinking, this, this would uh, have some appeal because we all struggle with the anguish that's described regarding hell in the Bible. And so, many people are drawn to this this particular view of hell. Here's a second false doctrine. It's called the purgatorial view, purgatorial view. The Roman Catholic Church is really the main uh, proponent of this doctrine, and they have a unique view of hell. And according to the doctrine of purgatory, everyone is judged by God ultimately after death, but only a small minority of saints will go directly into heaven. So, you'll die, some saints go directly to heaven, but most people who aren't quite saved, they they go to kind of a holding place, a holding cell, so to speak, called purgatory. And they believe that God's going to send most people to purgatory. And it's a place of punishment. Basically, it's a temporary hell. Most Catholics believe that people are released by God from purgatory into heaven after a certain length of time. So, purgatory is like a cosmic prison sentence ending with a ticket into paradise. And uh, there's not one iota of scripture supporting this false view of hell. In the Catholic tradition, there have even been many instances and still many places where uh, they teach that a family member could give penance and offerings and pray their loved ones out of purgatory. So, this is a very a very, very, very unbiblical false doctrine. So, a third false doctrine about hell is just that there is no hell. There is no hell. A small minority of Christians claim there's no hell at all. In their doctrine, unsafe people cease to exist at death. They just, they go back to the dust, they go back to the dirt. They usually go to Romans 6, 23, very common scripture, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they interpret this scripture to mean that death is the ultimate and final wage of sin. They're fond of saying death always means literal death in the Bible, and therefore hell as a place should never be taken literally. So hell, again, is kind of a metaphor in scripture, but it's not a literal place. So they, they overlook a lot of scripture. They overlook Luke 15, 24, which says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. They ignore the symbolic use of life and death repeatedly used in Romans chapter 7. Also, they fail to contend with scriptures like Genesis 2.17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. 
from the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In this passage, God was speaking directly to Adam and Eve, and we know Adam and Eve eventually did eat the fruit. They did the exact thing God told them not to do, but they didn't instantly fall over dead. God didn't lie to them. Of course not. They died spiritually on that fateful day, and literal death entered into the world as an inescapable reality. All this and more affirms safely interpreting Romans 6.23 to mean the wages of sin is spiritual death and eventual literal physical death. However, even if you're uncomfortable with this interpretation of Romans 6.23, it does nothing to prove hell isn't a real place. Literal death is an attached consequence to original sin from Genesis chapter 2 and on. We know from a vast array of other scriptures that death is the precursor to judgment, and judgment is the precursor to heaven or hell. This doctrine misinterprets one scripture and blatantly ignores obvious passages describing hell's realities and eternal damnation. All right, another false view about hell. Uh, it's, it, here, this is kind of the, the non-theological way of saying it, but the view is basically, eh, hell isn't that bad. In his classic book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis envisions hell as a dreary, bothersome, almost pleasant place whose inmates can take a day trip to the outskirts of heaven. This biblically illiterate view of hell seems to be pop culture's favorite. Pop music often refers to hell as a kind of eternal party for the naughty. Nearly everyone casually and exhaustively uses hell as a curse word. Television and movies and the internet like to portray hell as an obnoxious, almost silly place of uh, torment-ish. For many, hell might even be considered preferable to heaven. We hear this kind of talking quite a bit now in, in people who say things like, well, all my friends are going to be in hell, so that's where I want to go. So this is gaining traction as well. Hell is real, uh, but it's not that bad. It's a playground for the sinners. Another false doctrine. Hell is only temporary. Hell is only temporary. This false doctrine is the evangelical version of purgatory. In this way of thinking, the lost are sentenced to hell for a particular length of time, depending on their sinfulness while on earth. When the sentence is ended, the sinner experiences a second death, and their soul is extinguished by God forever. Adherence to this doctrine abandoned belief in the immortal soul. So, in their view, the soul is not immortal, and they're forced to become extremely creative with several passages of Scripture. A spinoff of this doctrine believes, much like Catholics, that after a severe sentence is completed, the fire-purified soul will be admitted by God into heaven. Uh, I, I agree with a comment by the theologian Stanley Horton. He said this, it's hard to see why the cross would be necessary if the lake of fire could provide another means of salvation. So, those are the main false doctrines about hell. Of course, there are, there are others, but those are the big ones. So, now we, we need to ask this question. Is hell a divine overreaction to sin? A divine overreaction to sin. This this is a question Christians wrestle with. Certainly non-Christians wrestle with this question. I'd like to give you, give you a quote here by, by Sperry Schaefer, a great theologian. In no way does man reveal his littleness more effectively than when he exhibits surprise over the fact that there are realities in the universe which cannot be understood. The permission of sin in the universe by a sovereign holy God who hates sin to an infinite degree, the damage it does to uncounted multitudes of beings, angels and men, whom he loves with the Creator's love, and the fact that sin must demand of God the greatest sacrifice he could make, all this only tends to enlarge the mystery involved. Wrestling with the profound weight of divine retribution upon sinful humanity is troubling. It requires a great deal of humility to accept our inability to understand how evil sin really is and how it conflicts with God's absolute holiness. We know because Scripture revealed it that God's holy answer to unrepentant sin is perdition and retribution. 
Serving the Lord with real honesty requires growing comfortable with the mysteries of God. Human arrogance assumes that it can always find the answer or solve the puzzle. But in God's economy, we aren't guaranteed every answer to every question, at least not in this life. Deuteronomy 29.29 applies nicely to this whole way of thinking. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Trying to understand why God will punish sin with eternal suffering isn't wrong. Job sought to understand his torment, but he did so without sinning or charging God foolishly. Consider this. Sins may be committed by unbelievers or believers, both of whom are injured by it and require grace. Sins may be committed against God, against others, against self, or some combination Ultimately, however, all sin is against God. God alone reserves the right to avenge sin, but we can take comfort knowing that he takes no pleasure in punishing sinners. The Bible is clear, Ezekiel 18.23, Ezekiel 33.11, 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish. The reality of hell combined with the revelation of God's overwhelming love should elucidate just how grave sin is. It's not merely that God refuses to be compatible with sin. Instead, God's unchanging nature, his holiness, makes it impossible for him to coexist with evil. Humanity is grossly underreacting to sin. God's response to sin has been consistent from the beginning of time. Now, Let's ask this question, and we'll revisit that question a little bit later. But here's a, here's a good question. Will there be different levels of punishment in hell? I believe the Bible teaches there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell. If you want to study it more, go to the blog, go to RyanAFrench.com, look, uh, look up the article about hell. But I'm going to give you a few scriptures that I believe affirm varying degrees of punishment in hell. Matthew 10, 15. I don't have time to read all of these. Matthew eleven twenty two, Matthew 12, 36 through 37. Luke 12, 47 through 48. Romans 2, 5. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. That's a lot. All the lost will suffer for their sins. The Bible teaches that. But for some, that suffering will be worse than for others. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 is one of many compelling passages that I've already mentioned that teach various degrees of judgment. Let me read Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. This is the English Standard Version. It says this, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People who do not believe in various punishment levels for individuals in hell reduce the throne of judgment into a sham where God pretends to be fair. The Bible is clear that God will be so entirely just in his decisions that not one person will claim unfair treatment. God will judge in absolute righteousness. His decisions will not be limited just to who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. God will also assign various levels of punishment in perfect fairness. Every lost soul will receive a personalized sentence directly from their, crea from their creator. And just as Paul said in Hebrews 10, which we just read, how much more, how much more are they going to receive judgment who trample and profane the blood of Jesus? And so this, this teaches that there are going to be levels. Now, do I know what they are? No. 
Do I believe that hell is going to be comfortable for some people? No, I believe that hell is going to be terrible for everyone. But I do believe there are going to be different levels in hell. Okay, so what criteria will God use to determine the levels of punishment? The Gospel Coalition lists three biblically sound considerations. Number one, the extent to which a person has abandoned himself to sin. So, how given over to sin is an individual? That's one consideration. Two, the extent to which a person by example and influence led others to sin. So, it's one thing to be a sinner. It's another thing to morbidly draw other people into unrepentant sin. And I believe that God will use that criteria. We see that from Matthew 18, Mark 9, Matthew 23. And thirdly, the extent to which a person abused their exposure to revelation and opportunity, Luke 47, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 12, 47, Romans 2, Matthew 10, Matthew 11, all of these passages confirm uh, this, this consideration. I believe that God is also going to take age and mental capacity into account when we stand before him on judgment day. For example, I don't believe that a mentally handicapped person is going to be judged the same way that a mentally sane person would be. I don't believe, and this is another discussion for another day, but I do believe in an age of accountability. And I believe that at a, at a certain age where knowledge is possible, where understanding is possible, because you, to obey the gospel, you have to have understanding. This is why we don't baptize infants. So I don't believe that an infant is going to die and go to hell. They never had the mental capacity to even be obedient to the gospel. So there's a lot there, but I'll leave you with that. Now, now we get to the really, the really hard things. There is absolutely no hope in hell. There's no biblical basis for holding on to any hope that grace will extend past this life into eternity. Let me read this quote to you from uh, Sperry Schaefer. Such a case should not be considered as without being precedent. Uncounted legions of angels have sinned, and for them, there's not the slightest intimation to be found in the Bible which extends to them a ray of hope. By divine decree, these angels are already consigned to the lake of fire, not under a possible provisio that this doom will be averted if, in the meantime, they repent. But they are arbitrarily, unrevocably consigned to retribution and that without remedy. Since God has said without condition that the fallen angels will be cast into the lake of fire, he would be found untrue should the destiny of the fallen angels be otherwise. Schaefer continues by pointing out the utter lostness of the Gentiles from Adam to Moses. Their pagan plight is chronicled in Romans 1, 18 through 32, as those who willfully rejected God. Three times in one context, Scripture declares that God abandoned them to their sinful ways. Ephesians 2.12 shows just how emphatically God discarded the Gentiles before the new covenant. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No more decisive terms could be used than men being without Christ, without promise, without God, and without hope. Furthermore, God destroyed the entire earth with water, and at least two cities were burned with fire because of humanity's iniquity. All this judgment came before God gave mankind a Bible or a Messiah. Schaefer concludes with a mind-altering thought. The result of any unprejudiced investigation into God's revealed truth respecting fallen angels and God-rejecting Gentiles of past ages will be a conviction that the marvel of it all is not that sinners are lost, but that they are ever saved in the first place. Okay, let's jump to another common question. And this is another uh, prevailing false doctrine about hell, and it, it engenders a lot of confusion. Does hell just mean the grave? Does hell just mean the grave? We've got to look at this question because if hell is a place of eternal torment, we need to understand that biblically, the word hell doesn't just mean the grave. There's a convoluted idea floating around, 
that teaches the Hebrew word shoal, the KJV sometimes translates shoal as hell, and sometimes as the grave, and sometimes as the pit. But there's an idea floating around that the Hebrew word shoal always means the grave and doesn't refer to the afterlife at all. Others erroneously contend that shoal always refers to hell. And if you've Googled articles about hell, you've, you've probably read an article fervidly arguing this fallacy. Uh, it, it's, there's just a lot of misconception out there about it. This is used to undermine biblical teachings regarding hell, and it's also an overzealous attempt to uphold orthodox teachings about the afterlife. Uh, I like Philip Horton, and he, he dismantles the myth that Shoal only means the grave. He says this, Actually, Shoal is often described as a depth that contrasts with the height of heaven. Often the context refers to God's anger or wrath, and sometimes to both wrath and fire. In some cases, the references are brief, and it seems it's treated simply as the place or the state of the dead. In it, the dead are called Rephaim, what we might call ghosts. Other passages refer to some of the dead as Elohim, in the sense of powerful spirit beings. It's clear that Sheol is the place for the wicked and all the nations that forgot God. Where the New Testament quotes Old Testament passages referring to Sheol, it translates the word as Hades, which it sees not as the vague place pagan Greeks talked about, but as a place of eternal punishment. Interestingly, in Acts 2.27, Peter quotes Psalm 16.10, and he clearly understood Sheol as Hades. It's perfectly proper to think the, to link the Old Testament Sheol and New Testament Hades verbiage together with the word hell. Also, it's incorrect to assume ancients did not believe in the afterlife. Enoch and Elijah didn't taste death because the Lord took them directly to heaven. David believed he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David speaks of being redeemed from Sheol's power, indicating his desire to be with God in the afterlife rather than in hell in death. The psalmist Asaph spoke of being received into the glory of death. Another phrase seems to indicate Old Testament saints expected an afterlife. God told Moses that after he went up the mountain and looked across to the promised land, he said, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. That's Numbers 27, 13. But Aaron was buried at Mount Hor, and no one knows where God buried Moses. So, being gathered to one's people isn't referring to a gathering in a physical grave. Clearly, God was speaking to Moses of the afterlife. How does the Bible describe hell? Jesus taught that hell was initially designed for Satan and other fallen angels. Revelations 20.14 reveals that hell will contain a horrific lake of fire. After the final judgment of God, the lost will experience continual and unimaginable suffering and torment. In contrast to heaven, where there will be no more tears, there will be dreadful weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth in hell. The gnashing suggests, among other things, the pain will perpetually cause people to grind their teeth in agony. Numerous times, Jesus mentioned hellfire or the fires of hell. Jesus called the fire everlasting, leaving no doubt that hell's torments are eternal. Jesus underscored the seriousness of hell, saying it would be better to cut off your hand or foot or pluck out your eye rather than use any of those things sinfully and be cast into hell. Some people find it troubling that Jesus mentions outer darkness in the context of hell. 2 Peter 2.4 references chains of darkness in hell. And some find it hard to reconcile that darkness with the fiery images of hell the Bible typically invokes. But this is hardly proof of biblical errancy. The afterlife is going to defy our sense of logic. It isn't beyond the realm of possibility that God created dark hellfire. Beyond that, we know that hell will be large and is ever-expanding. Scripture doesn't specify that every square inch of hell will be fiery or that every square inch will be dark. Hell may have significantly different regions throughout its length and breadth, and probably 
we know less about hell than anything else. In Mark 9, Jesus abruptly ended his ominous comments about hell by mentioning worms that never die and fire that never goes out. The word translated hell in Mark 9.43 is the Greek word Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew name for a place called the Valley of Hinnom. Jesus used this place to paint a vivid mental picture of hell. Gehenna was Jerusalem's giant garbage dump located on the southern outskirts of town. In the past, children were sacrificed to idols by pagan parents in Gehenna. In Jesus' day, it was a place burning with constant fires to devour the city's trash. The things burned there included everything from household trash to animal carcasses to convicted criminals. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 66, 24, and the worm mentioned in connection with dead bodies means a grub or a maggot. Maggots bring the awful imagery Jesus intended to conjure sharply into focus. What Jesus was trying to describe is a place that no one would ever desire to go to. The Bible gives us enough information about hell to know. Avoiding it should be life's paramount priority. Nothing, nothing is more crucial than diligently ensuring that we make it to heaven and escape the anguishes of hell. Jesus lovingly, compassionately, and compellingly asked his disciples, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Then Jesus asked another rhetorical question, is anything worth more than your soul? Satan challenged God on this very subject while seeking to destroy the righteousness of Job. Satan argued that a man would give everything he has for his life. He was wrong about Job, but countless others have traded their righteousness for temporary things. Again, Jesus cautioned us to prioritize heavenly things above earthly things, encouraging us to store up treasures in heaven, not on the earth. All of creation and God's word compel us to live with eternity at the forefront of our minds. I think it would be horrible to have an episode like this without answering the question, how can I escape the torments of hell? How can a person be guaranteed to avoid hell in the afterlife? This of all questions should be searched after with fear and trembling. Yet, most people think very little about the eternal salvation of their souls. Tragically, one of Satan's magnificently malicious victories is convincing generations of people that salvation is easy, cheap, and convenient. The average person spends more time searching for temporal pleasures than searching for redemption. Yet salvation is not found with casual commitment or through convenient conversion. The Bible says that even righteous people barely escape hell. Think of the awful fate awaiting those who haven't even obeyed the gospel. That alone should remove any casual or careless approaches towards the discussion of salvation, especially knowing it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The God who created the universe and heaven and hell is the only one able to tell us how to be saved, and he chose to reveal the answer to us through the Bible, his holy word. There's only one place in all scripture where people specifically ask the question, what must we do to be saved? It's Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And the apostle Peter gave the most transparent, concise response to that question that we have anywhere else in the Bible, and it's in the following verse, Acts 2, 38. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That precise formula is the only way to be birthed into the kingdom of God. At the heart of the gospel is the teaching that we've got to undergo our own spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. That's how we participate in the gospel, just as Jesus did physically. Essentially, repentance is our spiritual death. Baptism in Jesus' name is our spiritual burial. And the infilling of the Holy Ghost is our spiritual resurrection. And the infilling of the Holy Ghost is first, it's not the only evidence, but the first evidence of the infilling of the Holy Ghost is supernaturally speaking in unknown, previously unlearned tongues or languages, just like they did in the book of Acts, and every time from then on. 
Baptism is only salvific when done in the name of Jesus. To be baptized any other way than in the name of Jesus would be contrary to the word of God. So, after we're obedient to the fullness of the gospel, all the old sinful things pass away and we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. We walk in agreement with the Spirit, meaning God not only saves us from our past sin, but he also empowers us with his own spirit to live righteously. The extra good news of the gospel is that God doesn't just save us and leave us the same. He saves us, changes us, dwells within us, and continues to strengthen us daily. That's exciting news. And that's only scratching the surface of what it means to live holy and be transformed by the power of God. One of the reasons that we need to understand the theology of hell is because it is a great motivator. Uh, There are four ways the doctrine of hell influences our lives morally. Number one, it satisfies our inward sense of a need for justice in this world. If you've had a, a child that was murdered, you understand the human need for justice and the understanding that God is the ultimate judge. Number two, it enables us to forgive others freely. We can forgive freely when we understand that God is the ultimate judge. Number three, it provides a motive for righteous living. That one's pretty self-explanatory. Number four, it gives an excellent motive for evangelism. Ingrained in the complexity of human nature is the desire to see justice served. The doctrine of hell assures us that God is in control and that justice will be done in the end. Because that's true, we can forgive without worrying about final judgments. We love God and we serve him truly, but there are seasons where the fear of hell keeps us on a righteous path. And finally, the doctrine of hell should compel us to go into all the world, into the highways and byways, preaching the gospel out of true compassion, love, and concern for the lost. I really hope this discussion has been helpful, informative, and compelling to you. I realize hell in the afterlife, they're uncomfortable topics. And for many of us, we don't like discussing these things openly. I certainly don't take any joy in it. But maybe, maybe this conversation will be a good starting point for you to open up a dialogue with friends and family members who have an improper view of the afterlife. If you know them, if you love them, you have a responsibility, you have an obligation to reach out to them and talk to them about their eternal soul. I hope that you will. I hope that you love them enough to have the uncomfortable conversations. Remember, God loves you and he's not willing that any should perish. You're about to hear a 15-minute clip of Reverend T.G. McNeely. I believe it's 1982 at the Louisiana camp meeting. He preached his famous message, Trophies on the Walls of Hell. It's powerful. The audio quality is not very good. There's nothing I could do about it. I hope that you'll endure your way through it. I promise you, you're going to feel a touch of God as you listen to this sermon. It was a 45-minute sermon. Uh, I whittled it down to about 15 minutes uh, just so that it would fit in this format. Uh, You can find it everywhere. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on the internet. Just uh, just Google it. You can find the whole sermon. A lot of other great sermons by T.G. McNeely. A little, little snippet of information here. I've had the opportunity to ask many great men of God who I admire who their favorite preacher was or who influenced their preaching the most or maybe what sermon influenced them the most or stands out to them. And overwhelmingly, uh, great preachers of the 20th and 21st century point to this exact message by T.G. McNeely as one of the most unforgettable sermons they've ever heard. So I pray it's a blessing to you. Preacher! 
are prime trophies for the devil. Boys, he can get a preacher because the preacher is not just an ordinary man. Now, a lot of saints that like to think they're ordinary men, but friend of mine, they're not ordinary men. And you hear me? They're trophies. I want to show you what a preacher is according to the Bible. The Bible says that a preacher is a direct gift from God to the church and to the world. Preachers are God's spokesmen to deliver His message. Luke 10, 16 said that when Jesus sent Him out, the 70 said, if they hear you, they're hearing me. If they don't hear you, they're not hearing me. If they don't hear me, they're not hearing him that sent me. The next verse said, He that despises you despises me. Him that despises me despises him that sent me. So the preacher is a messenger from God concerning the plan of salvation for a lost and world. A preacher is raised up by God to be a deliverer of those who are in bondage. A preacher is a watchman in a church on the wall to give a warning when the enemy comes in. A preacher is a shepherd. Yes, he is. He's a shepherd. And God honors his responsibility to protect the sheep, to feed the sheep, and to shelter them and to lead them into green pastures and beside still water. So when the devil gets a preacher, he has and God gets an ordinary, run-of-the-mill kind of a man. He's got a real trophy. That's why Paul wrote the letter down there and said, you better know something about the devices of the devil. You better know something about his tactics. You better get your head in this Bible. You better pray and seek God because he's on your trail, my friend. He's assaulting you right now because you are a trophy. He's got ways that he can outsmart us and cause us to be manipulated right into a certain little position. He's He's right there ready to add another trophy to the showcase of hell. Judas, through the love of money, became a trophy of hell. Underneath the trophy, you know, is always a little, a little plaque to identify the date and give some of the details about how that you got that trophy. And I imagine on the plaque of, of the trophy of Judas tonight in hell, I wonder what the devil has got written down there. The love of money. I think that to the love of money. I think about to the love of money. Oh God, take away the love of the world out of our heart and give us a burden that stay true to the word of God. Others. Such as Samson is on display in hell tonight. He was a deliverer. He was not just an ordinary man. Samson was a real trophy. He's an Old Testament saint trophy. Yes, he hangs up there with the with the rare kills of Satan of the Old Testament trophy. The man that took the gates of Gaza on his shoulder, toast gates and all weighing over a thousand pounds and walked out of there to the top of the hill and threw him back towards the city. man that was back up in a corner one day, God, the Philistines was on him, and God opened his eyes, he looked down, he saw a jawbone of a donkey when, it, when the battle was over. The Spirit of God came upon that man and took him by the hand, and the Spirit of the Holy Ghost was, was all over him, and that thing began to, to sling and hit and knock and kill, and he laid a thousand Philistines at his feet before it was all over. Praise God, he was not an ordinary man. He was a man upon whom the Spirit of God came and rested upon him, and was born from his mother's womb but a few to become a deliverer. It never was the will of God for the Philistines to defeat the children of God. It never was the will of God. But God raised up for deliverance. He raised up Jesus. Yes, sir. He called him. He endowed him. He anointed him. He ordained him to be a deliverer of the children of Israel. But oh God, there he is. He's a trophy in hell and never did accomplish the will of God in his life. You're on your way to becoming a trophy of hell. When you violate the laws and principles and precepts of the divine word of God. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. God told him. By the warning to his mom and his daddy. To the spirit of God. To the prophets. To the law. By the warning. Try to keep him away from the strange women. Told him not to go down there. Not to mess with it. Oh, listen. You can't be a borderline Christian. You got to get off of the fence. You got to get down there. Praise God and help for God. You got to clean up your life. You got to have the Holy Ghost. Oh, 
cannot allow the desires of the flesh to dictate your decisions. Faithful saints, soul winners, altar workers, intercessors, burden bearers, Sunday school teachers, or trophies that Satan is seeking after. A burden bearer and an intercessor is not just an ordinary run of the meal type of thing. They are trophies. One that prevails, one that intercedes, one that moans and groans in the prayer room, one that gets under burden prays for her preacher. That's God to strengthen him. That's a trophy. That's a trophy. She's a jeweler. He's a jeweler. The man that holds up the hands of the preacher. He's a trophy. Lord, they will have trials. Their knees will bend and bow. Their hearts will break. The word, the devil will put temptation on them. He'll try to make them get crossed up with a preacher. He'll tempt them to do things contrary to the will of God. He'll try to make them rebel against the preaching of the word. He'll try to get them the loving things that church stands against. He'll try to get them to do anything to trick them out because he knows that they are real trophies in the kingdom of God. And some of you say to sit here tonight, you're trophies in the, in the work of God. Yes, you are. You're trophies in your church. Oh, preacher. Preacher. Hey. Hell is full of drunkards and sinners, whoremongers and liars, thieves and gamblers. He ain't got nothing to brag about. He don't show them off. They're there by the thousands and the millions. But there's only one Judas there. There's only one Samson there. There's only one Demas there. A man that studies the word. He's not easy to capture for the price. He's not easy. It took, it took the devil 23 years to get my He tripped him up. He outsmarted him. He made him think that he could preach without praise. One of the old originals back in the Texas district of PAJC on the old brother blanket ship. He got him too. A real, a real trophy, brother Price. A real trophy. Look at him. My God, you can name him. I can name him. Trophy is not easy to capture. It takes a long time. 23 years to get my dad. He walked up behind the pulpit one night to his church. Opened his Bible and preached a sermon. At the church, he pulled out a letter between the lids of the Bible and read it to the church. A letter of resignation. He closed his Bible, walked out to church and resigned. Moved mother and five kids away from the church. I was born in Pentecostal home. Never knew nothing but a Pentecostal church until I was 14 years of age. Never knew nothing but having a Pentecostal preacher for a daddy. But tonight, he's a trophy in hell. I don't know what part of that showroom of hell what wall my daddy hanged on. But I looked him up in a beer joint one night to carry him his Christmas present. I never, I never, I never did neglect him, even though he left us. We scratched and we scrounged and we tried to finally made out alive, but barely existed. Mother had no education. She worked in a cafe. She cooked. She washed dishes, and we did the same. We milked cows for two dollars a week, six in the morning, six at night. Try to extract a little money to get enough to eat. We pooled our money together to buy groceries. 
Daddy left and ran off with another woman, the heart of the town. Everybody knew who she was. Satan mocked. He had deeper head. I got him a trophy, a real trophy. So this very day, everywhere I go, that you, my dad, said he was a real preacher. He was a preacher. He was a preacher. He was a preacher. Oh, but that, he's not a preacher tonight. He's a trophy being showed off on display. It's a trophy right now. I went to that beer joint. I looked him up, and I went inside where he was, and Mary was sitting over in the corner in an old booth, all slumped over, dirty clothes on, old brim hat pulled down over his face. He never looked up, sitting there over a bottle of beer, tapped him on the shoulder. I said, Dad, he looked up with his bloodshot eyes, turned his head back down, pulled his brim his head over his face. I said, got something for you. You come out in the car, get it. He walked out. Holding on my arm, standing in his Sit down in my car. I said, Dad, here's your Christmas present. I don't ever remember from the day that my daddy left that he ever gave me a dollar or bought me a present. I never seen my dad, never received no money, never bought a pair of shoes for me, never. He never gave me a dollar that I can remember in my life since I was 14 years old. But I never forgot it. I love preachers. Preachers are rare things. They're not the ordinary kind of a man. I was preaching then, too. I love my dad. He flung around and opened that Christmas present. Directly his tears started falling down his eyes, and I couldn't hardly stand it myself. And I thought, first, he said, I hate your family in this kind of place, looking like this. I said, oh, it's all right, Dad. I love you just the same. He pulled up his sleeve. He rolled it up. Down his arm like that. He said, son, you see them veins in his arm? Yes. He said, I'd give right now. The man's drops of blood flows through them veins. To be back where I was with God and with my family when I left God. But the devil found the lure that caught the attention of this trophy. And my dad tried to make a comeback two, three years later in them old churches that he pastored. And I went with him. And we went hand in hand. And he went back to that churches that he pastored. He got up. And he confessed his sin. And he asked him to forgive him. And he, he told him he was sorry. That if he never stumbled over his life, he would pray to God that he would not hold it to his charge. And he poured his heart out in confession to every one of the churches that he went to that knew him for miles around Beaumont, Port Austin, Sales, and all up and down that part of the country. Church after church after church, he went back to confess. And I thought, sure, oh God, he shook that lure loose for sure this time. The devil won't get him. Hallelujah. And I was so happy. But the devil had him. He had that lure in him until he come up. He tried to shake it. And that's what he was trying to do. He tried to shake it out of his mouth. And he was hooked to that thing. But, but he would come and he'd fall. He went back down to the bottom of that basket. And he tried trying to get loose of that lure. He'd come to my house and he'd weep and pray. And he'd try to shake that thing out of him. But the devil had him hooked and he had a tight line. He'd worked for a long time to get him and he wasn't sick to let him go. He, he, he spent a lot of effort to get this trophy. There's a lot of bragging going to be for this. He's got kids and boys and three of us are preachers. And I want to laugh and show him off in hell how that I picked their old daddy up. Yes, sir. Now that'll be what he was. Oh, friend of mine. And so he shook and he went and he, he tried to throw that lure out of his mouth. But the devil had him. He never could get loose from it. So finally he, he played out. His strength was gone. And the fight left him. And the devil reeled him in. And they called me. Mom called me. One night about 2 o'clock in the morning. Said, son, hate to break the sad news to you. He said, your daddy died suddenly with a heart attack tonight. I said, Mama, where was he at? He said he just left the beer joint and went home. And before he could get in the bed, he dropped dead with a heart attack. And so somewhere tonight, displayed on a wall of hell, hangs my daddy a trophy of hell. And Satan laughs and talks and brags about how he tripped a Pentecostal preacher up. That's why Paul said, no, that the vice is the devil. And that's why Jesus said, watch, son, watch, 
What's your heart? What's your attitude? What's your spirit? What's your life? What's your conduct? What's your behavior? What's what you say? Be careful where you go. The devils are watching you. He's a trying to figure you out. He's a studying you. He's a looking at you. He's a master trophy, honey. If you're doing anything for God, he's going to try to pick you up. He's going to try to outsmart you and outseek you. He's going to try to deceive you. He wants to add you to the list of the Pentecostal preachers of the 19th century that became great men of God. But yet they wound up and as a trophy in hell. Oh, God, preacher, who's going to be next? I said, who's going to be next? That's going to be hung on the wall. Somebody's displayed as a trophy of hell. Well, it was in my childhood days, old autumn many long years ago. Now with the Spirit, now I'm a Savior, I was filled, not Church house out on a hill. 